Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 104 of Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about plant science. I'm back in Berlin for just a very short time, um, and I'm visiting Europe. And to be honest, we did discuss whether we were actually going to bother recording or take a break this week, as we've all been quite busy. I mean, I'm on holidays, which also, you know, sometimes it's nice to have an actual holiday um, Mm -hmm. without the homework. But probably in the next couple of weeks, we are going to have to take some time off um, for very important reasons. Yeah, like uh, I, I thought the stress of having one child is not enough. So <laughs> we made a second one and it's about to arrive soon. So that will mean we um, we will have to take another break um, for an indetermined uh, amount of time until I can record again. Yeah, like high two school children. or something. Yeah. Yeah, as you can tell, Yarm is still not particularly well it's still like I mean, a little I'm, bit touch and go but i'm getting better like every yeah. every week i'm getting better I you think, used like, the cough button a lot the other day like last week yeah. it was really a lot of yeah. yeah last week i had to mute myself quite a bit and um also i listened back to it and i'm like i'm i'm sorry everyone like it sounds horrible i'm so stuffed up my nose like i um i'm happy for any of our listeners who actually made made it through the show because i sounded quite terrible <laughs> And I hope this week it's better. This week maybe I will cough from time to time and my, my throat will be a little bit weird. But overall, I think I'm much better now. I always find that interesting when you have um, TV shows where they were really recording in big blocks of time. And sometimes you can see like a serial or I, mm-hmm. I don't know, some sort of comedy show. And you can see that somebody gets sick and it's like, oh, yeah, of course, they can't delay production because that person has mm-hmm. a cold. And then you sort of see them be sick on the show, but it's not really part of the Yeah. Yeah, it's we'll not really it's mentioned. Uh, yeah. It's not like here. Like here we lay everything on the table and we're like, oh yeah, I'm actually Lots severely of complaining. sick. Uh, let's dive right into it. Yoram, what's happening today? <laughs> Whoa. I'm sorry. Um, uh, today, yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about plant, some, some, some plant science today. Um, switching around the order a little bit for reasons that will become clear later on. Diversity in the class. Science. And today I want to talk about Marianne North, Q's Forgotten Queen. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, she's like, so you already know from that beautiful title that she has something to do with Kew Gardens in London, in the United uh, United Kingdom, almost said United States, which would have been horribly, there's probably a London in the United States as well, but almost definitely very different London. Yeah. Marion North, she was born in 1830 from very rich parents in England, Hastings in, in England. And I say that because it becomes important. Yeah, so is it relevant that her parents were very rich? Yeah, yes, like they were landowners yes. and her father was a member of parliament at one point for a while. And um, that gave them the means to travel. So I think this is also worth mentioning that a lot of our like old women who were botanists, they, they tend to have that re- very yeah. rich parent background because... Otherwise, they would have been married off or they... Well, otherwise, you probably wouldn't have heard of them. It, largely, yeah. they just would not have made it into history because only a privileged few made it into history. Exactly. And this is the case here as well. Um, so she trained, Marion North trained to be a vocalist, but at one point her voice failed her. And so she turned to painting flowers. What does that mean? She got a flu and... You it, know? Only, it was just this one sentence that her voice failed her. So I don't know what the details were, what meant, like what what event of fate happened. Maybe this is a polite way of saying she just couldn't sing very well. Maybe that was that. Or maybe she turned like hit puberty and her voice changed. I wanted to be a ballet dancer when I was six years old, but my legs failed me. <laughs> 
yeah, I, I wanted to be a strong man, but my arms failed me. Um, so she turned to painting flowers, uh, and especially after her mother died in 1855, uh, when she was 25, she began um, to focus on her painting and traveling with her father around the world, who mm-hmm. um, had just lost his seat in the parliament at this time, and then started traveling the world and was taking his um, his daughter with him. His his seat failed. Something failed him. Yeah. <laughs> His constituency failed him, maybe? Okay. Yeah, his his yeah, his voter base failed him. And so they went to like Syria and uh, along the Nile and many other places together and she was painting along the way. She was painting flowers and plants that she found along the way. Um and they did that for quite a while. Um until 1869 when she um when when her father then died, uh she fully pursued then her dream of traveling the world and painting plants and she went on a tour around the world um she visited places in europe so like sicily and all around the mediterranean area she went to asia she spent some time in india south and north america were on her stops and what i quite liked is um that at one point she got in contact with charles darwin um and he suggested to her that hey there's this cool place australia and new zealand you should Mm -hmm. check that out you will really like it and so she did and she traveled there and um painted paintings uh all over all over the place wherever she went um painted in oil on on cardboard pieces and created over 800 paintings this way um very detailed um paintings not only of flowers and plants but mainly of flowers and plants and then at one point when she returned to the united kingdom um she needed a place to put all of the paintings if you imagine like you travel with 800 paintings mm-hmm. um it becomes quite cumbersome at one point and she, so she convinced q gardens to display her art by first of all donating the entire collection which is always like a little bit of a <laughs> of a trojan horse really like you say like i have this amazing collection now do something with yeah. it yeah i do um, think there's a threshold that you've got to be quite good for them to yeah take your entire collection and but she also offered to create build a gallery on Kew Garden. Okay, on the, the threshold has lowered slightly now. Yeah, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, take all of my stuff, I will also build a building to house all of my stuff. Okay. Um, but it also... So they're thinking, okay, we, we'll put the art in here for a couple of weeks and then we've got a free building. Yeah. Although I think that already at the time they realized the importance of her paintings um, as also a scientific um, uh, vehicle because you couldn't take pictures at, like photos at the time of plants. Like black and white photography was just on the rise but Mm -hmm. for anatomical drawings color is very important in plants and um you could only get that by painting it by hand with oil and so that's what she did and that's why it became very like scientifically very important um i'll have an example of that also later uh but it also makes the collection important until today because it's a sort of historical document of the plants 200 years ago that um that uh, that like some of them that were in focus of of scientific community or at least in in her focus Um, did she also write descriptions along with the plants was she very much the the paintings only or was she sort of saying oh i saw this commonly along the river banks of the nile or something like this because this can also be helpful for mapping where plants used to grow what their habitat was and maybe some uses as well from a few stories that i've read she was mostly like seeing this as taking a portrait of a plant okay i mean she knew that she had to like she put a focus on the anatomy she wasn't just like putting them in like a very visually attractive poses and then drawing them she was like also focusing on the technicalities of it Mm -hmm. um 
but sort of the the science of ident uh, understanding the like identifying the plants naming them and cataloging them that was done by other people that traveled with her often um and yeah and the the collection exists until today so this is like in the eastern part of Kew Gardens there is the the gallery uh, with like over 800 paintings from her on display and according to Kew Gardens her exhibition is the only permanent solo exhibition by a female artist in Britain which on one hand it's sort of cool to be proud of but also a little bit of a shame that mm -hmm. um, there's only one also, that whole, we'll just let her keep her art in this building for a few weeks and then we'll get to keep a building obviously didn't work out for them, did it? So, uh, it you've committed now. It didn't. Yeah, they committed to it. They, um, I think in the 80s or 90s, they collected quite a bit of money to restore the building and a lot of the paintings as well. Um, so it's also like actively looked after um, until today. Wow. And then, yeah, in... Um, when she was only 59, she, she died and, um, like after her, her health declined, she spent her last five years in the United Kingdom and then died there. Um, but was still very important to, to this day with the work that she did. And there's like a number of plants named after her, um, that sort of were in her honor or still during her lifetime, um, so there's like Areca Northiana, Crinum Northianum, Nepophia Northiae um, that I named after her. And there's even a whole genus, a uh, genus named Northia uh, named after her. Unfortunately, like in the description on Wikipedia, it doesn't really say what kind of plants these are. Um, I only know they're in a family of Sapotaceae, um, but I don't know, I know what that is. What yeah. It is yeah. Um, but yeah, so very important contribution to sort of the documentation of plant science um, by Marianne North. And that also then is the segue into the next part. I have a quick uh, comment. I'm looking her up at the moment and two important facts. It says here that her life really did begin at 40. So she it was sort of after her dad died mm. that she yeah. did all the traveling. That was like when she was 40. So that was quite late even by now standards for life beginning but for then i guess yeah and also she hated the idea of marriage which i'm yeah. sure was key to her success yeah i mean she pretty much traveled not, not completely alone she had like people ar around her that traveled with her or she had like travel companies with her but she didn't travel with a partner um at least there's nothing like at least no male partner that is sort of documented uh, and she lived like for a while in, in, in Ceylon, for example, in India and other places where she really she spent time in these other countries. It wasn't just that she sort of as a tourist came there. She really spent significant am uh, amounts of time abroad and only really returned when her health made her uh, made her return. So that's pretty cool. But also like it's a cool adventure life, but um, possible because she had the funding from her family. Um because I don't know, like, I couldn't find anything about her, like, making a living off her paintings. So she pretty much was fortunate no, it's not clear, yeah. to, to be the heiress of this, this fortune and then being able to, to spend that um, on, on traveling the world and uh, painting beautiful paintings of, of, of plants. And, uh, yeah, so and one plant that she painted, um, a very important painting of is my favorite plant of the week. Uh, I'm just playing the jingle at this point now.
favorite plant? Um, and my favorite plant is uh, another plant that's named after Marian North. It's Nepenthes Northiana. And when I told this to you, you immediately said like, oh yeah, that's a pitcher plant. Mm-hmm. And it's true. It's a tropical pitcher plant. But a pitcher plant as in the jug pitcher, not the yeah, not plant the... drawn in Marianne North's pictures. Yeah. It's not a picture. That was a not pitcher. necessary. That was just annoying. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you went to like the baseball pitcher. Like it's not. Uh, yeah. But I mean, a pitcher is just, yeah, a pitcher as a jug is kind of a weird mm-hmm. word for a jug. It's not very modern, I think. Yeah. But it's like these pitcher plants are these um, jug-like, <laughs> jug-like carnivorous plants that have these pitchers where then insects fall in the, into and then they are digested in some sort of like digestion juice. I'm not sure that all of them are eating definitely the animals. I think some of them are sort of feeding on the poo of other things that like oh, live okay. in them. I think I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but probably like whenever you say like all of them do something like. It's never, it's never that absolute. <laughs> no. Um, so it's a tropical picture plant, a picture plant where a picture was painted off mm-hmm. by Marion North in Borneo, um, and she was the first one to illustrate this. And there was this story that, um, like, one of her tr- tr- mates that she was traveling with um, went into the jungle and went through like all kinds of uh, hardships to get her this plant and he like collected the biggest pictures that he could find and brought them back to her and then she would hang them on the veranda of the place that she was staying at and then like she she said like she took the portrait of this plant and painted it um so she i mean she also went into field but in this story like somebody else brought the plant to her and she she painted it and then the painting made its way to Harry Veitch or Veitch, um, another rich person owned like a big company, um, rich enough that he could send a guy, Charles Curtis, to locate the plant in Borneo and bring seeds back to the United Kingdom. Okay. And so they did, and they like they also asked um, Marion North like to describe the place where they found it so they could find the plant again. And um, introduced the plant to the botanical gardens in the in the UK um, through this through this way. And um, today, this this plant, I mean, it still grows in the wild, um, so it can grow up to like ten meters tall. It has like these sort of fifteen millimeters, is what I say. I imagine like thumb thick um, um, stems that they grow up and mm-hmm. in on rocks and hillsides and it's very important for it that it has like a limestone substrate that it can grow on which is also sort of its downfall with because of human activity because humans like to um, dig up limestone and use it for whatever i don't know what i think like some like concrete and stuff is where you need limestone and so a lot of quarries destroyed habitats of this plant um, in the wild so today it's endangered um, like so many of the plants that we talk about here, it's kind of dis- depressing. But yeah, so today it's endangered. Um, it's also very much sought uh, after because it's so beautiful and big. It's really so, charming. It's it's kind of bigger than a hand, it looks. It can get quite large. Yeah. And it has sort of reddish greeny hues, pale red, um, reddy green on the outside with some little spots. And then this almost candy cane striped lip. So mm-hmm. these pictures have this, the lip around the edge of the jug. And this is... Yeah, really quite dazzling. And then, of course, a little a little lid as well, a little cap. Yeah. And I think the lids um, in the picture plants, they don't close, but they might help prevent too much rain from going in, maybe, yeah, to stop so. the picture from overflowing. And, yeah, and like collectors like them so much that they they pick them so much in the wild that, yeah, it 
um, contributed to the endangerment and the like bringing them close to the to to being extinct so like like so often humans don't make it better but um it's still a very cool um large large pitcher plant if you look on the wikipedia page for the species <laughs> you actually can see the pa the painting from marianne north as well which is mm -hmm. quite charming yeah And there's also like uh, on on Wikipedia, there's like a whole story of the the discovery, like the botanical history, with like a lot of quotes of of different people, how they found it, how they also then um, thought about the relationship of this pitcher plant to other pitcher plants. Um, they had some like misconceptions in the, at first, um, where they thought it was related to another known plant, but that that one doesn't actually grow in Borneo. Um, so it has like a quite um complicated botanical history with many different botanists like thinking and talking about this plant at one point it's also a comment on how sort of accurate her paintings were that they were as you said they were really showing the plant in a full not in sort of just for the beauty so they were using that as a way to guess its phylogeny mm -hmm. if it was a hybrid of x and y um, yeah. Just based on how it looked. It's really cool. And just from the picture, they could tell that this is a previously unknown plant um, mm -hmm. and could then also confirm that. It was not only that she drew it in a way that it looked unlike anything else before, but she... I've drawn a lot of unknown plants in my life, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. 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 So that Very is nice. um, an Ephantis Northiana. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 So the thing I wanted to talk about today is not really a proper cognitive bias, but it's something that's come up in the last couple of weeks because there has been a fairly important event happening as far as um, Elizabeth Holmes has sort of continued the trial now. They've picked the jewelry mm -hmm. and stuff like this. So that has been in the news again. And in response to this, there's sort of this concept of the Holmes effect mm -hmm. that's come up. And I guess I want to see, Yoram, if you could guess what the Holmes effect might be. To be honest, I have, I, I'm looking up as we speak who Elizabeth Holmes okay, is. Okay, sorry, I should give a background. So Elizabeth Holmes is this blonde, quite slim, pretty, blue-eyed, I think blue-eyed woman who had Theranos. So Theranos was the company which with a single drop of blood could run thousands of different blood diagnostics mm -hmm. tests and it was backed by all these rich people um it turned out it didn't work and there's now a trial discussing whether it was just a failed technology or whether she knew it wouldn't work and it was a big fraud mm -hmm. and I mean, it was it was a really huge thing. She got millions and millions of dollars. I think they were even putting all of these blood tests. Like they had built it into Walmart. Like that's how far ahead it was. Oh. And basically, her prototype was like a painted thing. It was all fake. It was really it didn't work. Everybody knew it didn't work. And she she is quite pretty, but also she would she dressed like Steve Jobs. She wore always these black turtlenecks. Yeah. She has a very low voice, which people say she has sort of made her voice sound lower and like sound mm -hmm. it's very distinctive um she had a husky dog and she was telling everybody that that was a wolf um all of these crazy stories about who she so it's sort of become a mythology of who she is as a person and how this mythology of herself might also have helped her <laughs> 
fraud investors like commit fraud mm-hmm. um if that was indeed what happens which let's be honest it does seem like it is but yeah i think i mean at this point we we can't legally say that it was but it it, it sounds dodgy <laughs> yeah um so this was quite a big deal not only because sort of of who she was and who she pretended to be and what's all gone down but she was a female entrepreneur mm-hmm. who people invested in. And that has been traditionally a very, very rare thing. So based on that, can you guess what the Holmes effect is? Um, like the, the eagerness to jump on somebody who's like on multiple ways convincing and just trusting them with everything that they say, like especially when they're... When they're um, nice to look at they sound convincing when they speak um they they dress in a certain way i mean like the whole hype around steve jobs was also partly around the way he presented himself mm-hmm. in public like um independent of like the genius that he was or wasn't um but it's about his presentation in public that clouded division of investors and people I mean, it's a very complicated way to describe this bias. I think that would actually, that would work quite well. I think the the Holmes effect that I've seen discussed in the the last few days is the fact that as a result of Holmes, people are now more anxious about investing in women. She's sort of that, Ooh, yeah. there's, there's so few women there that, that when one of them screws up, that one minority does mm-hmm. something, everybody points and says, see, this is what happens when you give money to a woman <laughs> oh my god yeah um so harvard business review found that in 2019 funding to women-led startups guess the percentage of all the funding oh it's 0.5 percent you're actually a little bit low i'm, I'm shocked but it's only 2.8 percent yeah but so still. yeah less than three percent of funding went to women-led startups that's quite extraordinary and to 2019 was an all-time high despite being such a small figure. And unfortunately, in 2020, that fell to 2.3 and it follows a few years of increases. And so now there's been this discussion. Obviously, it's not, you know, it's it's one year. There's not a trend yet. You, it's There's a correlation, not causation here. But people are saying, has she now sort of poisoned the image? And obviously, it's not, I mean... She seems to have done a bad thing, but the fact that other women are judged based on her, if that's what's happening, that's not on her, right? That is on our own biases where when there are so few, and it's really the problem, it's one of the arguments for having numbers when you say, well, we want to make sure there's at least 20 or 30% of women, because if you've only got a couple of them, everything rests on them. And with any minority, everything rests on those people. And when they fail, they're the example. Um, And it's so unfair because like, you can point like if if you take any tech conference and like just bundle up a couple of startups there that have like a ton of venture capital to burn yeah um chances are like they're all like led by men but chances are that at least a few of them if not many of them or most of them also have like a product that doesn't really exist or is completely oversold and it's like well this is this is this article that I can share in the show notes. It says, you remember Juicero, right? Mm-hmm. And Juicero was an internet-connected juicer that in the end didn't even juice. And they say, yeah. 
yep, white middle-aged male founder. And then they give another example. So they give a few examples saying, the thing is, you, they, all these things have also happened, yeah. but she is rarer. She is more different. But part of that is because she's a woman, but that makes her become even more infamous and therefore... Yeah. But it's yeah, but it it still is uh, absolutely unfair in this like tech world, um, because like yeah, there's so much stuff that's that's proposed or like published there, and and where people invest money in it, it's just as ridiculous as having a single drop of blood doing like all <laughs> kinds of of clinical testing on him. But then you can see there's sort of a, a follow-on thing from that. So this is yeah, it's 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 obviously unfair that any group of people is based on a single representative or even mm -hmm. a few examples from them. This is this is ridiculous. This is bigotry and prejudice, and it doesn't make any logical sense. But the problem with this, the fact that this already exists, is that then the the people who themselves are minorities then put more pressure on the minorities. So like, yeah, so if you are one of these women, then you become the one who is guarding and like mm -hmm. putting pressure on those few other women because if they fail, it means a lot to you as well. And this becomes an even worse, it's just adding on, piling on and piling on and piling on. Do you think this is something we see in science as well? I mean, yeah. luckily we don't have like a 2% representation of women in leadership positions. But it's also not that much higher. Like it's like maybe ten percent higher, twenty percent higher. But it's not. Um... I've seen that directly where I've I've had discussions with other women where it's it's this thing of because there are so few women in this industry, like in the environment that we were in at the time, it is more important for us that they behave in in a way that represents us and mm -hmm. that, that sucks and we would discuss this in, in you know this kind of guilty feminist way of like we know this isn't fair but at the same time I also had I did hear directly from the men saying none of the the female scientists here are worth anything so I mm -hmm. I knew that that judgment was being happened was happening not just not in my head, not subconsciously, like consciously, explicitly, it was said, Yeah. look around at these three or four examples of women, they're not good. Yeah, and that's why we shouldn't fund women. That's why it's better to have like another man in another leadership position. Yeah, and this is, then if you're a sort of a woman, you say, well, you can't win unless you have more women. <laughs> I mean, I can also say, I can point to, look at those five men who are also rubbish, but that doesn't matter because there are 500 men. So yeah. hopefully one of them will be good. And I mean, even with the women, if there's is one or two or three of them that are good, they will find the one who's bad. I mean, when yeah. the numbers are so small, it's easy to find the bad examples and ig ignore the other ones, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think this definitely does happen from both sides. And I think the only answer is, I mean, yes, solidarity, but also just getting the numbers up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you you if you have I mean we know that from all our experiments like if you have a larger sample size like small like um, Yeah, some outliers won't outliers, make a big yeah. difference. And not and we use women as the example because it's it's kind of the easy one for us um but any you know Yeah, yeah, any any group that people might be singling out that is just underrepresented generally. There's yeah. no <clears throat> there's no scientific reason for that to be the case. There's usually historical reasons and Yeah. Yeah, bias based reasons. But yeah. So yeah, interesting. Like Holmes I, effect. I, it's it's very it's not a real cognitive bias, which is what we've done before. So the cognitive biases of these things are sort of in our brain. Yeah. But it's in it's kind of a casual thing that's being discussed now in newspaper parlance. So it's not even 
an academic thing, but, yeah, but I so can see how... Anecdotally, we've experienced that in real life in academia. So... It's, I, I mean, I, I don't think this. you should use. I don't think you should use weave experiences anecdotally as a backup. I'm just sort of saying this is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, to, I think it is something to be aware of. Yeah. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. My first fact is uh, something that I found about plants um, that they. Like we look at this like huge diversity in plants that we have today, and on evolutionary terms, you might imagine that they just like slowly, gradually, sort of in a linear way, build up to this diversity. Like slowly, sort of every thousands of years, like not every year, but every thousands of years, there would be more diverse plants Pop, there. There's another species. Pop, yeah. Pop, pop, pop. But now there's new research that found that um, this didn't actually happen in some sort of a gradual, constant increase in diversity. There mm -hmm. were like two bursts in time where there was some like a massive increase in diversity in plant species. Do you want to guess what the first burst was? I don't know the first one. I can guess like, I think the second one I can yeah. guess is when the angiosperms like yeah. went crazy. So this is like the abominable mystery as spoken by Darwin. There's what the hell happened that somewhere all these angiosperms, just like all these flowering plants just popped up everywhere. Yeah. That is, that's the second burst. Yeah. Um, and then 250 million years before that, there was the first burst and that was when the gymnosperms evolved. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the conifers the, and yeah, the conifers and the likes, the, the non-flowering plants that were setting seeds. Yeah. Um, because at, at this time, um, before that, you had like ferns and like slow, like like uh, non-vascular plants and stuff like that on on Earth, and you had um, mostly like mites and scorpion-like animals mm -hmm. grow, uh, living on land, and then you had like but big the, ones, right? There was like yeah, I think they were much larger than today, mm -hmm. and then you had the first sort of evolutionary event of gymnosperms emerging, and that led to the rise of like all of these different conifers and, and gym, uh, gymnosperms that, that some of them we know still today and some of them were living at the time, but then it plateaued. Um, while then in the animal kingdom, like there's lots and lots of stuff that was happening at the time. There were like insects coming up and um, I think like, I don't know if mammals already came up there, like, uh, but there's I mean, I want to say dinosaurs. <laughs> there must have been some dinosaurs. Some dinosaurs, something. definitely. Um, so lots and lots of different animals coming up there. So the animals were diversifying, but the plants sort of plateaued there, um, which is interesting because the main driving force for evolution in plants is the pollinator relationship. So, But only when, when you get to angiosperms. Only when you get your angiosperms, because if you don't have a flower, you don't have a reason to interact with pollinators because mm -hmm. nothing there to pollinate, really. So you would only rely on wind and stuff like that. And so then... The angus, angiosperms, the, the flowering plants came up and that was then the second burst um, that then led to this like massively div ma massive diversification because then you had all of these relationships between like small mammals and insects and plants um, that would then, where the plants would then find their niches and be like, okay, I only want to have like this wasp in the afternoon. So I have to make like the, the, my flowers open in the afternoon and have a specific color that only this wasp likes. Um, if, if any of our listeners know which plant Yoram is specifically describing, <laughs> the type of plant that only so wants wasps in the afternoon, <laughs> yeah, let us know because we're always looking for new favorite plants and yes. <laughs> do our homework for us. The, the afternoon wasp plant. Yeah. Um, 
so how did researchers figure that out? Because like we can't go back there and, and fossil records. First of all, fossil records, but then it's also hard to compare like flowering plants to non-flowering plants in terms of like diversity like how do you define the diversity in all of these different species and so what researchers did is they took like 1300 different plant uh, plants that they looked at uh, with the earliest being 400 uh, 420 million years ago this is the oldest until present and then they were looking at the complexity of the reproductive structure so they were pretty much just counting how many different parts make up their reproductive structure because you can't compare the flower structure to a thing that doesn't have a flower if okay. you want to draw mm -hmm. any conclusions. So their workaround for that was then to just count like how complicated and how many different comp ways you have for um, between like the non-flowering plants, um, how complicated where there's where their reproductive organs and then how complicated were the flowers then later on so and sorry, everything in between. The argument is that if the gymnosperms have got more complicated sexy bits, then that means there's more likely to be more species around because the complication comes yeah. from sort of having to find specific niches within. Yeah. Yeah, is that the argument? So they're saying that the more functions the plants have and the more specific they are, the more parts they also have. Mm -hmm. And um, this is one of the researchers, Leslie, uh, involved here, says like it's a useful way of thinking about broad scale changes encompassing the whole plant history. So it's sort of, it's, it's a simplification of sorts. But it also helps if you want to compare plants that have like completely different structures and you still want to draw some comparisons about like the, the diversity that they have within their group. Um, and that's how, how they created their data set and then saw that you had like these two bursts where suddenly you had like a huge increase and then for a long time nothing really happened until you had the second burst. Okay, so, so sorry, just, just, I'm just thinking about this a bit. So why nothing really happened... In terms of like new traits and new species emerging, like diversifying, like you sort of had the same bunch of species, like still yeah. quite a few, mm -hmm. but the same bunch of species just doing their thing for millions of years, um, growing in the same habitats or like maybe adapting to the habitats, but not really changing that much in terms of the species, in terms of what we think as um, adaptation. And does this correlate with periods of climatic stability or something like this? Do they look into? Oh, I didn't. I didn't see I that in the in yeah. the article. But that's, okay. I mean, I I found that on like Science Daily where they're linking to like the full research article, but I didn't read the full research article. So that would be actually interesting to know. Um, if if there's like, if the climate also played a role there. But as I said, like in these 250 million years between these two events, a lot of other things happened in evolution. It was not that like all of evolution was sort of slowing down. Yeah, sure. It was specifically the plants that were sort of plateauing mm. while like dinosaurs and animal, uh, other animals and everything was like doing all sorts of weird things. And then the invention of the flower happened and then suddenly plants were like, oh yeah, now we have new stuff to play with, new things to to evolve in different niches and in, in, in different um, directions. Yeah, now now that bugs aren't all three meters long, <laughs> let's yeah. make flowers for them to trample over. Jumping quickly from the past into the present, or maybe into the present, or maybe even into the future. At the end of September, there was the first release of a CRISPR mm -hmm. edited food to go on sale. Okay. So this happened in Japan. Um, by Japanese definition, this doesn't really count as a GMO, this plant, which 
um, is this is due to the fact that the modification that was made using CRISPR-Cas9 sort of mimics similar changes that can occur naturally. Mm-hmm. So by their definition of what is a genetically modified organism or not, this doesn't count because we could yeah. do this. So they, they seem to regulate like the product and not the process, which is a big difference in like the whole debate about a mm-hmm. legal like registration and just like um, like the framework of how we treat these plants. Yeah. So the plant in question is tomato. It's created by a startup, actually. It's called Silicon Rouge High Gabba Tomato. And as you can maybe guess, it has high amounts of GABA. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently the the startup sold the GMOs, well, non-GMOs, the CRISPR gene-edited seedlings to anyone who wanted them and over 4,000 farmers were into them and they grew the tomatoes and now the tomatoes themselves are for sale. Are for sale. The original plan was just to sell tomato puree. So to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, not have the, the process plant. it and then exactly, which is, I think a little bit less intimidating for people who are afraid of GMOs. It's not a living product. It's something that's yeah. been boiled down and you can't grow a new plant from a can of tomato puree. It's not going to take over the world and start day of the Triffidzing us. But apparently there was just a lot of interest. So they decided to take the tomatoes as growing plants straight to the market. What, what do the plants do different when they have more GABA? I mean, GABA is this plant hormone. Yeah, so the plants have reduced levels of a certain enzyme that stops GABA from breaking down. Um, GABA, yeah, it's a hormone. It's sort of a neurotransmitter. It blocks signals between the connections. So it's, it's sort of in the plant useful, but also there are some ideas that GABA in humans may be helpful to improve stress mm-hmm. and sleep. I think based on this same kind of neurotransmitter, I mean, the neurotransmitters is in humans, right? So yeah. you know, it's a plant hormone, but it's somehow it's having some sort of signaling thing in the humans as well. I don't really understand neurotransmitters in- enough. I'm sorry. Um, but also in fairness, I don't think it's just me. Even the, the pop science Thing that I'm reading is saying that this research about it actually improving stress and sleep is debated, mm-hmm. which to me means mm. there's claims, <laughs> but there is no proof yet. Yeah, with many such studies having a conflict of interest. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, don't don't start eating fancy tomatoes to r- reduce your stress levels unless. Like eating a good tomato salad reduces your stress level, but then it's probably independent of the GABA. Then it's probably if you just like feel very good, like like a nice tomato mozzarella salad. Yeah, to me, it's it's also a weird thing to edit because it doesn't seem to be targeting any of the things that we would normally yeah. think of. You'd think more flavor, better resistance to diseases, better growth under stressful conditions, you know, something that improves improves the yield or the the strength of the plant or how it tastes in the end. And this is a little bit hipster, I would say. It's a bit this alternative market. Yeah, that's why I'm surprised why so many farmers were immediately jumping on it when like it's not it immediately could... growing better or tasting nicer. Like then it means like all of these farmers have to hit this market of people who 
think the tomatoes can it's really people, distress. No, no, it doesn't have to. It has to be people who like technology, right? Yeah. So if you think that this is a consumer market where people are excited about new technology and want to try it for the sake of it being new technology, then that makes more sense to me. They yeah. Just, you know, I'm the first person to try a square watermelon. I can also be the first person to try a mm-hmm. CRISPR-Cas9 tomato. Yeah, that's a good point. And I would do that. I mean, I would... Same, yeah. I would definitely buy the gmo tomatoes just to have said that i had eaten it just yeah seriously like if they would <laughs> go on on sale here i would be in line to get those i just remember when they had like the pea protein artificial meat stuff um mm-hmm. that we had didn't have in in germany for quite a while when it was already a thing in the united states and it came here and then like some supermarkets were stocking it but they were like sold out within yeah like within half of the, of the day they were really gone and then I like went to different supermarkets to get it and to try it, and in the end, like it was fine. It wasn't actually that amazing, but I really wanted to see this like food technology. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to eat it, and I would be the same with like a crisper tomato. I think. Yeah, it's kind of a gimmicky thing. Yeah. Um. So this is I saw this via IFL Science, and the final comment is that this is going to be something that we see more of, mm-hmm. uh, more and more of. So, and they mentioned the fact that the the UK that one of the the things from Brexit is that they can now separate themselves from the European Union, which has much stricter laws on CRISPR-Cas9 or CRISPR um, gene yeah. changes. So, um, But from one like um, uh, uh, plant hormone to another, I found a story about uh, strigolactones. Um, these are also plant hormones um, that, as far as I know, don't have a neurotransmitter function, but they play a role in a relationship between plants and microbes and they okay. they uh, sort of trigger uptake effects of nutrients from the soil from microbes and so on so they are important in this relationship and as we like we've talked about this so often like there's not only like microbes that like fix nitrogen and put it into plants but also make all sorts of other nutrients available to the plants so having a good relationship to the microbes in the soil is a good thing for the plants um, in general with like some exceptions of like parasites, parasites and stuff. But strigolactones have like sort of a more general. It's not just with these microbes, right? They also yeah. are generally involved in sort of growth and yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. They and there's also some like pests that specifically use these uh, strigolactone signals to grow. So they they are not only beneficial; they can also be detrimental. So you want to regulate these levels or at least understand how these work and. A big problem with that, with research on strigolactones, was that you just can't buy strigolactone in a bottle um, and then pour it over your plants, at least not in like larger scales. Um, but now, and this is like um, coming as a biotechnology um, um, major, is that the right word for my title? But anyway, like I studied biotechnology at one point. So for me, it sounded a little bit simple, but it's it's really cool actually so they made like they put the the whole biosynthesis pathway so the way that the plant makes the strigolactones they put that into e coli so in the bacterium and into yeast into baker's yeast mm-hmm. and then now they can make these strigolactones at scale they can now produce a lot of them and this now opens the possibility to do, actually do research on like in, in a field trial you can actually see like if you grow whatever you grow corn and you water them with a like a diluted solution of strigolactones. Is that good or is that bad for your corn? Okay. And you couldn't do that before because it would just be too expensive. You would just like chemically synthesizing these strigolactones is super complicated. But now they just 
took all of the genes that were necessary and that sounds like it's very simplified for like the complicated stuff of finding the right genes regulating the, them in the right way putting them in an organism that doesn't usually have these and then having the product being made um, but they managed to do this and now um, they can actually make these strigolactones in e coli and in yeast and then um, make them available for for research or even agricultural application um, so now they hope that we soon understand better if we can use them in a beneficial way and then that we can actually make a lot of it and then use it and get more um, and get more yield um, just mm -hmm. by clever clever application of a plant hormone yeah it's sometimes something i don't really think about the fact that so many of the secondary metabolites and things produced by plants we don't really have easy access to yeah Uh, chemically or you can buy them from a company but it's going to cost hundreds and hundreds of euros for a very small amount of powder which is not yeah. something you can do field trials of yeah exactly so you can like in the lab you can run like some small like, experiment on arabidopsis but but even, yeah even then it can be yeah yeah so yeah that's it's just it's it's cool biotechnology um just because because <laughs> i felt a little bit ignorant I, i had a quick look at what gaba actually is and what it does what it is known to do in plants so it's a non-protein <laughs> amino acid um mm. and the full name is what gamma amino butyric acid nobody needs to know that but i guess it it looks from a publication that i can see from the you know to 2019 that there's still some discussion about the various forms so it seems to be involved in abiotic stresses and also in biotic stresses but it's also a key metabolite sort of an intermediate for nitrogen metabolism and amino acid biosynthesis and there are some discussions about what it does in signaling pathways and whether it can be or yeah also applied exogenously and trigger certain effects in the mm -hmm. plants um so, yeah, doing things in the plant, involved in signaling, involved in regulatory mechanisms, doing things in humans, less less clear, guys. Less clear, yeah. <laughs> Seems to be less clear. And then especially, like, taking up through the diet. If you imagine, like, if plant hormones from tomato would end up in your endocrine system, in, like, your own hormonal system or neurosystem, it would be weird. Like, I would not be feel comfortable eating a salad if I knew it would mess with my brain chemistry. Yeah, it's it's an amino acid. I would guess it goes in there and we break it down quite quickly, but who knows? Yeah, who, 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 who knows? knows? Like, who not us. We're not, who understands how people work? We don't understand human, um, human biology well enough. I actually, I don't really remember what my final fact was supposed to be. I saw a paper that was about tomatoes somehow, <laughs> but then I was starting to read the, the abstract and... I came across the genome Peapod, the gene name Peapod. Mm -hmm. And then I had to find out what Peapod was. So Peapod is... <laughs> what is Peapod? So I don't know. And the end of the story is, that's your homework. Go and look what Peapod is. No, it's <laughs> it's just, it's a gene that's involved in this um, network of genes involved in uh, cell proliferation and cell differentiation. So sort of overall development of, of size and shape. And I always, I always want to know, you know, Peapod is quite a clear name mm -hmm. and it must relate to the phenotype of the mutant. Mm -hmm. What do you think Peapod looks like? We've got an Arabidopsis, we've knocked out a gene and we see the result and we say, I'm going to call this gene Peapod. Think like short, like 
like thicker silics, so like the the pods where the seeds are in in Arabidopsis, mm -hmm. they're usually like these like long narrow tubes um, where you can't make out individual seeds. But imagine they sort of bulk up and mm -hmm. become they can actually see like the, the the seeds pushing through the shell of the pod. Wow, it's um, perfect. You're just completely accurate. Look, here's the picture. Oh yeah. It's exactly that. They look like little pea pods. They look like. But it also looks ribbed. It looks like a six pack from a person. Like, yeah. I would call it ribbed. That would be my gene name for it. The other thing Our is Arabidopsis got ribbed. Cool. The <laughs> this is why you're not allowed to do science anymore. <laughs> yes. The other thing is that the leaves sort of. Um, I think they're a little bit larger and they also curl under a little bit. But the most important thing is that the seed pods look like pea pods, which. Mm -hmm. I, again, I've mentioned this before, but I really respect when the names that are given to phenotypes or genes really give you a visual of what you're supposed to expect. And it yeah. also, when it's something cute like this, it makes it easier to remember what that gene does, which is really helpful when you have this network of 8 billion genes with like Rookie 53 and like HSP70. And you're like, none of these, none of these names mean anything. Like this is just Like a lot of the time, the genomes is just a family. Like HSPs are heat shot proteins. There's, there's tons of them. 70 is probably the size of the protein in killer dolphins, I would guess, which yeah. also tells me nothing about its function. Sometimes really big proteins do cool things. Sometimes they're just chunky for no reason. Yeah. Like these details don't really give me much. At least heat shock protein, we know that it's, it's probably responding to heat shock. Yeah, but it could for all kinds of reasons sure all kinds of reasons why when you put like heat on the plant and then the protein is made and yeah yeah but 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 cool like uh i was just thinking like how hard or easy it is to rename these proteins because i had like in my past like some proteins that had like a weird sort of generic name got like a more specific name after people figured out what they do so maybe there's hope for all of the weird heat shocks <coughs> Cat fact. I found a cat fact um, that ex finally gives us the, the answer. Why can't house cats roar like Katy Perry would? Um, that's and, a bit obscure now. I think that's a little bit dated. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> true. Like that's 10 years ago now. I don't mm. know how long, but long enough. Um, but apparently cats in the whole lineage of cats from like house cats to big cats They can either roar or they can purr. Um, okay, but ours can purr, so it's fine. Yeah, ours can purr, um, but they can't roar. And ha but I wait, mean, nothing can ever do both. According to this article that I found, yeah. Not, no, no, none of them can do both because it comes down to the anatomy of their voice box. And here in the article, they use lots of like wor big words that I don't understand. Um like for for like the different structures in there but in the end it comes down to that um the animals that can like the cats that can roar they have longer heavier stretchier fleshier and fattier layers of tissue making up the vocal cords so they just have like these long beefy vocal cords so they can um, vibrate at a very low frequency and mm -hmm. they can make this like low pitched roaring sound mm -hmm. whereas when they can purr they have like um just like a different structure it's not like not as beefy but they can um i think vibrate it like at a sort of higher frequency mm -hmm. um faster faster the 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 voice box and therefore they're able to purr 
why that on an evolutionary scale sort of diverged? Why? What's the benefit of purring? I can, I can pretty well see the benefit of roaring. That seems useful. Purring, I enjoy it, but I'm not sure. I mean, we don't really know. That's the, the thing. Like, there's lots of theories about purring. Like, some say it's like a healing property because like I've sick that, cats, yeah. they, mm -hmm. they purr. Or it can be calming, like either others or themselves. Um Some say it might help hide the mewing of kittens from predators because they're sort of making like this background noise that drowns like the... It's like white noise. Yeah. Okay. That it could be white noise. But why then like a lion that can roar can't purr? Yeah. Like Surely a good old off roar would also like protect your kittens quite well, right? Yeah. With some purring. But then they can't heal themselves. So <laughs> I don't know. But um, so yeah, it comes down... To the structure of the voice When box. you feel sick, have you ever tried roaring? No, because then I would just have to cough more, I think, if I really start to roar. Okay. But maybe I could try or Maybe if you're sad, like if you're purr, sad, yeah. And just like curl up in a ball and just be... Like, <laughs> bit weird. We got a bit weird there. Yeah. I, that's, yeah, I don't know like where hum humans fall in this like distinction between purring and roaring. Because we can't do. I think really. I think humans find cat purrs therapeutic. Is there? I'm sure yeah. there's been studies on this. This might just be my pro cat pur propaganda, but I think that's a thing. I think that's science, you guys, and I don't care if it isn't because it's pro cat. <laughs> yeah, but so if you want to make like a house cat breed that can roar, you have to breed for beefier, fattier, thicker vocal cords. Cool. Um, and you might lose the ability to purr, but then you have like a small house cat and it can be like, rawr. That would also be cute. I would buy that. Very cute. I think with that, we're at the end of this show. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Plants for Pets. That's where you normally speak to Yoram. On Instagram and sometimes on Facebook when it's not down for many hours in a row, you can find us at Plants and for Pets. Let's be honest, when it is up, I'm still not usually there. <laughs> um, for us, it's always down. And we also have a ton of blog posts on random plant science things on our website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. Yes. And our opening and mu closing music, as always, is Caravana by Philip Gross. If you like our show, um, tell friends about it or um, write us on iTunes or wherever you can write podcasts. It helps us. Um, I think the best is word of mouth to find new, new listeners. So if you tell somebody who likes plants to listen to our show, that would be great. And with that... Yeah, I think we should mention that we're probably going to be off for a couple of weeks now, yeah, at least. We're not really sure what's going to happen in the near future. We'll try to keep you updated on the socials, but, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a break. If you want to listen to more of us, there is a new episode of the Plant Book Club, which is us and also two of the scientists from Flora L Design and also an independent science communicator, Ellen Earhart. We said that wrong. Um, we talk about plant books. We read plant books and then we chat about them. So that's just come out, Yoram? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was just released. We um, read the book from um, Baronda L. Montgomery, mm -hmm. um, Lessons from Plants. And um, we had mixed feelings. I'm think, I think it was a fun episode um, to listen to. And then maybe or maybe not read the book. Um, but if you're interested in that, you can find a link to that in the show notes as well. Or you just go to plantbookclub.com. 
And if you're lacking plant podcasts to listen to in our break, I should also shout out that our friends who run the Plant Book Club with us also have their own podcasts. So you can listen to Flora and Friends from Flora L Design, and you can also listen to Plant Crimes. So we recommend you go and check those out if if you're lacking some plant fun in the next couple of weeks. Yes. With that, um, thank you for listening and goodbye. Talk to you at one point. (laughs) Bye.